I think I'm good. I think I'm recording. Does that look right? Yeah. All right. Um, if you brothers want to turn to Daniel 9, that's where we're going to be looking this morning. And then I'm going to um, pray and, and we'll get started. Father, we are thankful for this morning. Uh, we're thankful that your mercies are new every morning that we are able to come before you together in your word. Um, as we begin our day, that we can start our day thinking about you and what you've said, I'm reflecting on who you are and what you've promised and what you've done. We pray that you would, um, by your spirit, help us to understand your word. Um, this morning, we recognize that apart from the work of your spirit, um, we are arrogant and stupid to think that we can understand your word rightly. Um, I pray that you would uh, be at work so that we would trust you and hear your voice above all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, if you want to look with me at Daniel 9, um, I, entering this chapter with um, not really any trepidation with regard to the content because I don't think, uh, I mean, there's a few places where the content can be a bit um, dicey in the sense of trying to figure out uh, exactly what it means or trying to figure out what it means with any kind of precision, but mostly um, some trepidation with regard to the amount of content in one chapter, particularly as it draws back to um, the Pentateuch and then presses forward to Revelation. Um, the reason that Daniel 9 is picked up on so much in contemporary eschatological discussions is because um, it has so much to say about eschatology that gets picked up by New Testament writers. And so we, we tend to um, get a bit obsessive about it. Here's what I want you to gather. I do not think that in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, in the sense of typologically in the third kingdom or Greece, Daniel 9, Daniel 10 through 12, um, that anything really different is being said. I think you're getting the same general eschatology or understanding of the end of things or the, the unfolding of God's story to the end, um, but you're getting it explained differently with different details filled in. So what I don't want you to do is think somehow Daniel 9 stands apart from the four kingdoms followed by the kingdom of God, we, um, or that Daniel 9 somehow stands apart from the coming of the little horn or the antichrist figure, the coming of the son of man or the Christ figure, um, etc., or that it stands apart from the same history with Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, um, and then the kingdom of God. So what I want to do is avoid you thinking that, that somehow this stands apart as this additional, new, mysterious information that doesn't fit with everything else we've been doing. It, it really doesn't. Um, you're going to see that when we get to 10 through 12 as well. So whether we finish Daniel 9 today or not, I'm not sure um, because I have a lot of notes and I left a lot of notes out trying to make sure we finish. Um, but it may lead you to questions and as we look at those questions, I may have to come back and visit some of those. Part of the reason is in 924, um, we're going to get an overview pretty much of the whole 
end and consummation of all things. <laughs> and so it's like in one verse. So there's a lot there. So we'll have to um, spend some time uh, walking through this. But let, let me begin with this basic question. What prompts Daniel's prayer? We need to ask the question, what, what prompts Daniel's prayer? So look with me at chapter 9 and verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of the years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So let me ask you guys the question, what prompts Daniel's prayer? What prompts it? Good. So that's, that's playing into it. So first is um, Jeremiah's prophecy um, is prompting it. But Jeremiah's prophecy in relation to what, in relation to what makes him go, oh, Jeremiah's prophecy is nearly, that the 70 years is nearly over. He perceived in the books, which is really pressing us to Jeremiah. But I, I want to ask a question. I want to ask a different question. Let, well, let's just go to Jeremiah first, and then we'll come back. Go to Jeremiah 25. So keep your hand in Daniel 9. Go to Jeremiah 25. So he's referencing De Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29. I would say, to a lesser extent, he's referencing some passages in Isaiah. Um, but we won't look at those because it's not as direct a reference. But... Um, we will look at some as we go through. So look at Jeremiah 25. Um, and and look, look at verse 8. We'll, we'll look there, verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words. Here's Jeremiah speaking to Israel. Okay? And by that I mean, I mean namely the southern kingdom of Israel or Judah. Right, so when I say, you know, you, sometimes you say Israel, you mean the northern kingdom. Sometimes you say Israel, you mean the whole people. Um, in this case, when I said Israel, I mean the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, so he's speaking to the Israelites in the southern kingdom of Judah. You can see that, by the way, if you pay attention to um, verse 1. Um, he's, he's said that the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. Okay, um, now go down to verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord... Of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send all, for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for who? Who is he sending for? You can say it out loud. Nebuchadnezzar, good. For Nebuchadnezzar, the king of which country or nation? Babylon. Babylon. I'm slowing you down there because it's important. Calling for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all these surrounding nations, I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish them from the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the who? King of Babylon for how long? 
Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish who? The king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Just to um, hammer that home, obviously 29.10. Look over at 29.10. I want to see the emphasis there again. When 70 years are completed, for who? For Babylon, good. I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, okay? And then that's when he says, for I know the plans that I have for you. Um, and we all like to take that verse and turn that into now and, um, you know, <laughs> well, I mean, last time I checked, I'm not under Babylonian captivity. Um, so, all right. But the, um, there, there, there is some principial application, I suppose, we can make. But with regard to the nature of God and his goodness toward his church, um, but that wouldn't come right over to America. You guys understand that. So, okay. Um, I, I want to I ask a question now. Who's in captivity Who's in captivity? The tribe of Judah. Okay, so really Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity 100 years prior by Assyria, right? Okay, by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom is now in captivity. And how long does Judah, and remember Jerusalem's in the southern kingdom. That's why it's a big deal. So there's the capital. Judah's in captivity. How long does Jeremiah say their captivity is going to last? 70 years. And he relates their captivity to who? Who are they captivity by? By the king of Babylon. Um, and when will their captivity end? At the end of 70 years. And who will also end? The king of Babylon and his nation over them. You guys follow me on that so far? Okay, so those, those events are coterminous. There's a coterminous event between the captivity of the southern kingdom really, or, or just, but we'll just say Israel under Babylon. There's a coterminous event between the end of their captivity or their exile um, and the end of um, Nebuchadnezzar's reign and really the end of Babylon's reign. Okay, so now go back to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. We're going to ask in a question why they're in captivity in a second, but go back to Daniel chapter 9 and look at verse 1 again. In the first year of who? Darius. Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a what? A Mede who was made king over the realm of the who? Chaldeans. So, so who's, who's no longer ruling over the Chaldean realm? Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, you guys follow that? So now, what prompts Daniel's prayer? Daniel, what's that? The time has come. Nebuchadnezzar's gone. Belshazzar's gone. And by, when we say Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, we don't just mean Nebuchadnezzar. You understand we mean his descendants as well. But those who sit on his throne. You guys understand that because when Christ is going to come sit on the Davidic throne, he's referred to as the Davidic king. You guys understand how that works? Okay, so they don't look, they don't look at, um, they're not like us. So I want to break you out of... Uh, a little bit of, when I say Western, I don't mean all of Western history. 
but modern Western individualism. I want to break you a little bit out of that thinking and understand that when they say Babylon, like Nebuchadnezzar's reign, they're going to refer to his son and his grandson. I think Belshazzar's a couple generations down, isn't he? So they're going to refer to his son and his grandson, and they're going to say that's Nebuchadnezzar's reign, right? That's why you can see David's reign being shown his son and grandson. You guys, you guys follow me on that? So that's, all right. Yeah, British nobility would fall in. But I mean, even just that, that's where they're going to get a lot of that notion. But even um, just most of the history of the world, we haven't thought about individuals so radically separated from one another. So, so you know, we don't, when we think about like, um, we used to have this a little bit more in our culture where your kid goes out and acts a particular way and you're like, hey, like, you know, um, in the case of, you know, uh, let's say Curtis, he says to his son, hey, you're, you're, you're representing the Skaggs name. Like, you're, you're dishonoring our family name, right? Like, you could say that kind of thing, and that was meaningful to people, <laughs> you know? So that, that, there's, a, there's a sense in which we've, we don't see things that way as much anymore. But they did then. So here, here the Medo-Persian kingdom has come in. Darius being a ruler in in, in the media part of the Medo-Persian kingdom, Cyrus in the, the main guy in the Persian kingdom. So what is, what, is, um, what is Daniel thinking? Babylon's fallen. Jeremiah's prophecy's come, being fulfilled. You guys follow that so far? Now I want to I wanna look at one other thing that ties in there. Go to Leviticus 26 because he references, Jeremiah references their violation of the law and the exile that's come as a result of that. Leviticus 26, and then we're going to flip forward to Second Chronicles after that. Uh, you guys understand, I, and I've talked about this before, but I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about it again. I'll put it up here on the board a little bit. Um, I think sometimes this is, this is misunderstood, but... When we talk about covenants, when we talk about covenants, we talk about what you've heard me talk about in Genesis, okay, the, the covenant of works, right? The covenant of works. This is existing in Genesis 2 um, and violated in Genesis 3. But the covenant of works is, is, is here, here's God's, God always relates to people by way of covenant. You guys see it throughout the Bible. There's no relationship between God and man that is somehow naked of a covenant, right? It's always there. In Genesis 2, when God makes a covenant with, with Adam, God's covenant with Adam is on what basis? Adam, do this and live. Do, don't do this or do this and die. You guys remember that? So here's the covenant. We're going to be good. Like, I'm going to bless you. And, and by, I don't want you to hear the covenant of works as like, as like a yoke or burden for, for Adam. It isn't. Adam isn't a sinner when this covenant's made. There's no burden here for him, Right? He's a holy, righteous guy communing with the Lord. He sees the law like David, you know, the law is my delight, right? Okay, it's not this, oh, it's burdensome for me, I can't keep it, because he's not a wicked sinner at this point, right? So God makes a covenant with Adam and says, Adam, um, obey me perpetually and perfectly, and your mutable, your changeable holiness and righteousness will become immutable. You'll become 
unchangeably holy and righteous. You'll dwell with me forever. You'll eat from the tree of life. You guys follow me on that? Okay, here's the one test there. Don't eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you'll die. You'll lose your, because your, your holiness and righteousness is changeable, you'll lose that. Um, you'll become unholy, unrighteous, and you'll die. And so will your progeny with you. Okay? Um, he's a federal representative. All right, so that's his covenant. It's not burdensome for him, um, but it does have a kind of test. Now you say, um, is, he, is, he, is God graciously working in such a way that he's able to keep it? Yes, right? But he violates it, okay? He violates it. What happens? He's cursed and driven out of the garden. God makes another covenant that we, 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 we tend to refer to um, as covenant of grace. Um, now I'll say that 315. In other words, I'm going to send another. It's the seed of the woman. He's going to keep this covenant of works for you. So think about Christ's ministry. Life, perfect. He, they're at pains. The gospel writers are at pains to show you how Christ is keeping this covenant of works for you. Every time Satan tempts him, he resists. Every single law that God has given to Israel, he keeps. Right? Why is Jesus baptized? When John the Baptist comes baptizing, what's he coming baptizing for? What's the purpose? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So why is Jesus, who's never sinned and needs no repentance, being baptized? You ever stopped and consider that? John the Baptist has stopped to consider it. When Jesus comes up and says, uh, let me get baptized by you, what's John the Baptist's response? You, you should be baptizing me. I should be baptizing you. So, like, I don't understand why you would be baptized. You've not sinned. You don't need repentance or the forgiveness of sins. What's Jesus' response? Yeah, I need to do it to fulfill all righteousness. What's his point? God has sent you as the final prophet of the old covenant. This is a command he's given to his people. And what do I need to do? Keep all the commands he's given. Right? I need to keep them because they failed to. You, you guys following so far? All right, so we don't think about just his death as taking care of the penalty for our sin, but his life, his life keeping the precepts of the law for us, right? His death takes care of the penalty of the law. His life deals with the precept of the law. So here he is, this second Adam is gonna come. The second Adam's gonna come. He's gonna keep this covenant of works for us and that puts us in a what? A covenant of grace. Why is it a covenant of grace? Because now we have a mediator who stood in our place and did it for us. Do, do you guys follow me on that? Okay, um, so now that's going to build. That starts in Genesis 3.15. And if you will, you have a kind of antediluvian administration of it. What do I mean by that? And a little bit of a post but antediluvian, prior to the, um, to the flood. Administration of that covenant of grace. And you see that formation of religion. So if you're in church on Sunday at Sovereign Grace, you'll see it in Genesis 4. As Cain and Abel are bringing sacrifices at the appointed time or offerings. Why are they doing that? Because they're actually in a covenant and there are particular regulations for worship in that covenant. 
And actually one of them violates the regulations for worship in that covenant. And that's a real problem. You guys follow me on that so far? So sometimes we look at them and they go, such primitive religion, they must have just been making junk up. That's not what's happening, right? They, they, they're in a covenant, they understand the right, so they, they don't keep it. When you come to Genesis 12 then, God comes to Abraham and makes a covenant. And what I'm driving you at is when he makes a covenant with Abraham, we now see that this seed of the woman is gonna come through a particular nation, namely Abraham's family. And they're, they're going to, Abraham's family is going to live this out um, typologically. So remember we were kicked out of the land. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing in the garden were exiled. Now when, Abraham, when God comes to Abraham, makes a covenant, says, I'm going to multiply your seed, your offspring. Boy, that was the way it was in Genesis 1 and 2. God had commanded, you guys following me so far? Okay. I'm going to multiply your offspring. They're going to be a nation. Um, well, we're going to get to that in Exodus 19. There's going to be a nation of priests, which is what Adam was supposed to birth through Eve, right? I'm going to multiply your offspring. I'm going to give you a land, right, where I'm going to dwell with you. And I'm going to, you're going to live under my rule and blessing, and all the nations will be blessed through you. Okay, so now, think about that. That's all reclaiming stuff that's lost in Genesis 2. But it's reclaiming it in a typical fashion. In other words, what I mean by that is, it's not the final form of that reclaiming. It's a picture of the ultimate reclaiming of that stuff in the new heavens and new earth. Okay, so he comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to do that. And now they're in this covenant under Abraham in which Abraham's going to bring this to bear, okay, um, through his family. And then God says, all right, now you've gone from a family to this nation. And he comes in, and I, what I want you to understand is Abraham is still in effect, and here comes the Mosaic covenant. But, but this covenant hasn't stopped. You guys follow me so far? And this covenant hasn't stopped. This is just going to build, Moses is going to build on it in a national sense. Moses is going to come along and say, here's the national covenant for a national people, right? You're now a, a, a national church, if you will, right? <clears throat> and here's how you're going to live together as a, as, as a kind of church state. Um, and here are the regulations. You're going to go in the land, you're going to live this way. And remember, there's civil regulations. Here's how you're going to govern the people in the land. There's a leadership structure set up. That's where elders begin. Elders don't drop out of heaven in the New Testament, right? Here they are. What's this new thing? Well, they actually exist in Exodus. We know what elders are supposed to do. They're judges of the people, right, um, on God's behalf, okay? Um, that they're going to have, so they have a leadership structure. They have civil regulations. They have moral law in the Ten Commandments, and they have... Um, ceremonial or religious regulations. Here's how you worship. You guys remember all that stuff? Okay, so he gives them all that. And then, you know, where is David gonna be? Still here, David is actually a drop down under Moses. Because if you remember, um, in, in um, Leviticus, number of some other places, we're told about a king who's coming. He's gonna be a king under the Mosaic Covenant, right? Um, and and then, then what happens here is this, this covenant is broken by Israel, and so we're promised a new covenant. But notice, it's still here because when you're, when you're uh, becoming saved, if anyone is in Christ, right, he's new creation. Okay, great, but you know what else you get in Galatians 3? 
If anyone is in Christ, he's a child of who? Abraham. Right? We don't stop and think about that. That's an odd statement, isn't it? If anyone is in Christ, he's a child of Abraham. Not God. Abraham, because we're coming all the way back to the fact that the new covenant is fulfilling this. Because this didn't. You guys follow me on that? What they're told under the Mosaic covenant, though, is this national covenant is that you're my people, but here's how the tenure in the land is going to go. This is what I don't want you to mix up. The Mosaic Covenant in its form or its administration is legal. So that Israel, um, to some degree, keeps the land or doesn't keep the land based on their behavior and their belief or unbelief. But that doesn't mean God isn't being gracious to those people and saving them as he promised Abraham he would. You guys understand the distinction there? So that there's always, even in their disobedience, which we're going to look at in Leviticus 6, even in their disobedience, there's always, and they're being kicked out of the land, there's always a sense of those elect Jews who God is still saving. The remnant, the people who believe. Are you, you guys following me so far? Okay, so as a nation they're being judged, but this doesn't mean every member of the nation is disobedient and unbelieving. Right? Some of them are b believing obedient people. In fact, like the prophets who tell them this stuff are, are members of the nation who are believing obedient people. Sometimes the prophets despair. There aren't enough of us left. You guys remember that, okay? Um, so Elijah thinks he's the only one left, right? Um, sometimes Moses acts that way, right? In Numbers, Moses is just like, just, if this is the way the people are going to be, just kill me already, right? In Numbers, so if this is the kind of people I have to lead, there are elder meetings where you sometimes feel that way. All right, so not because the elders, but because the people you're dealing with. But all right, so you've got Moses, the Mosaic Covenant. Now listen to the Mosaic Covenant, Leviticus 26. Look there. There's blessings for obedience for this nation, but there's also, there's also punishment for disobedience. And I'm wanting to set the table for this so you understand what's happening. Leviticus 26. Um, we'll just look at a few. Look at verse 18, for example. And if in spite of this, you will not listen to me. Do you guys hear that? Notice the language listening, listening to God's voice. What was, what was Adam's problem? He listened to who? Listen to the voice of his wife, who was listening to the voice of the serpent, neither one of whom were listening to the voice of the Lord, right? Okay. If you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. You guys capturing that so far? Okay. Now, keep going down to verse 21. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. Go down to verse 24. Then I also will walk contrary to you and I myself will strike you. How much? Sevenfold for your sins. Go down to verse 28. Then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you, what? Sevenfold for your sins. Go down to verse 40. But if they confessed their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, in their treachery they commit against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them in the land of their, of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, and they make amends for their iniquity. Now, I want you to pay attention to this for a second. 
If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery they committed against me, so that I, he t- said, I walk contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. He's talking about a coming exile, isn't he? So I want you to catch this because he said two things. If you don't listen to me and you walk contrary to me, I'm going to punish you sevenfold for your sins. Why sevenfold? It's complete. Okay. How do they know that's complete? Well, the creation account. They, the way they think about time, right, is God completes things in sevens. You guys understand that? Okay, so that the week is complete in a seven. So you have the Sabbath, right? What else is complete in a seven? After, on the seventh year, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to let the land rest and let slaves rest, etc. right? Okay, in the seventh seven, or 49 years in, so the 50th year, what's that called? Year of Jubilee. Year of Jubilee. Everything gets returned. All things, re- right? So seven sevens, seven, like this is a big emphasis for a reason. It's, it's speaking to completion, okay, or fullness of his judgment. What does he say after that seventh seven? If they what? If their uncircumcised heart is humbled. What's the problem? What does he mean when he says uncircumcised heart? Okay, they circumcise in the flesh of their foreskin. Why? As a sign that they belong to the covenant with Abraham. And what does the circumcised flesh of the foreskin point to? I, I mean, yes, it's a bloody sign, so it points to the shedding of blood. We're going to pick that up, for example, in Colossians 2. Yes, it's a sign on the male member, which is pointing to the, the purification of, of what's going to come, the seed from the male member, so you're picking that notion up. Yes, it's the eighth day, which means it's the first day of the new creation, not because that's when vitamin K levels are particularly high and so blood clotting is better. Um, I know guys do that in apologetics, but that's not the point. The point is the, 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 the fullness of the creation, the old creation week has been fulfilled and the first day of the new creation begins. So what day is Jesus resurrected? The first day of the week or the eighth day, the day after the Sabbath, right? So it's pointing forward to that, yes. What, what else is circumcision pointing to? He's picking it up right here. What, if you're circumcised in your foreskin, what are you being called to also be? Circumcised in your heart. In other words, your heart's supposed to be clean. You're supposed to be born again. It's talking about being born again. It's what it is. You're supposed to have new birth, okay? Um, so if, they, if, they then, if their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, what's he saying has happened to them? If your uncircumcised heart is humbled, what's happened? It's been circumcised. You guys follow that? You've, you've, been, you've been born again. All right. Look what he says. Then I will remember my covenant with who? Jacob. And I'll remember my covenant with who? Isaac. Isaac. And my covenant with who? Abraham. Abraham and I'll remember the land. Okay. Notice he doesn't come back and say, I'm going to be gracious to you on the basis of my promise to Moses. I'm going to be gracious to you on the basis of my promise to who? Abraham which is repeated with Isaac and Jacob. Are you guys following that? Okay. Um, I point at this because they're, they're being told in advance, if you don't listen to me and you're disobedient as a nation, I'm going to exile you for a completion of time, a sevenfold fullness of time. When you repent and humble yourselves, 
I'm going to restore you to the promises I gave. You guys following that? Jeremiah comes and says, you've been sinful, wicked, not listening to the voice of God as a nation, particularly via your kings. God is now going to exile you. How long? 70 years. What is 70 years? Let's just do math um, here. 70 years is 10 what? Cycles of seven. Ten, okay, good, thank you. 10 sevens, another big important word in the Bible, right? That points to a kind of perfection or completion. So you have 10 sevens, right? Um, how do I know this? This language is gonna come up. So let's, let's give you an example of where it comes up. When Jesus and the disciples um, are talking, and Jesus starts talking about, and they, they get into a question about forgiveness. What do the disciples ask Jesus? If I forgive somebody, how many times? Seven times. They come to them, they repent, I forgive them seven times. Is that sufficient? In other words, at that point, can I stop forgiving them? Do you, you understand? <laughs> That's what they're asking. How many times do they get to say, I'm I repent, forgive me, and then I get to stop forgiving? Seven times sufficient. You see what the disciples are doing, okay? Is that enough? They're, they're, they're trying to almost legalistically employ the number seven to, to be done with having to forgive people that, that tick them off. And so you guys understand how that goes, okay? And by the way, that is the heart of anybody I know. Every time we have somebody in this office who's deeply offended by somebody else, how many times do I have to forgive them? Like, when is it complete, right? That's the question they're asking. That, so as much as we can sit and look at the disciples and go, seven times, come on, guys, you mean on the eighth time you got to stop? You can stop, and you, you, we want to mock it. We all get it. We all get it, especially when someone offends us again and again and again, right? Okay, so, so Jesus is like, um, what's his answer? Seven enough? What does he say? Seven times 70, right? Um, 490. Now, um, I, I, I want to ask a question. Is Jesus' point, when he says seven times 70, is his point, once you get to the 491st time, it's over? <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys understand how he's using, are you hearing how he's using these numbers? Okay, we sevenfold, 70 years of exile, etc. All right, go to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. Um, and we're still talking about what prompts Daniel's prayer. <laughs> um, all right, 2 Chronicles um, is just after Kings, etc., um, before Ezra. Now, I, I know that you'll, you know, we're gonna, we haven't dealt with First and Second Chronicles yet because technically in our um, Protestant Bibles, we put Second Chronicles, we've got Samuel King's Chronicles. Um, in the original Jewish order, the canon, Second Chronicles is actually the last book of the Old Testament, um, which is where we'll actually take it as the last book of the Old Testament uh, because it's essentially as the, just before God goes silent, if you will, after the prophet Malachi, you get a review of Israel's history and then God goes silent, right? Essentially is how, how, how it tends to play out. Okay, so look at, look at 2 Chronicles 36 and look at verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them 
36 verse 15, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, right? His people and his dwelling place being the temple. But they, the, the messengers he kept persistently sending are the prophets that you've seen throughout Israel's history. Remember, 2 Chronicles is the last book of the Old Testament. So actually what's happening here is he's saying, look, review the history. God has sent pr prophets again and again and again because he had compassion on his people and, and his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of who? Chaldeans. Who's that? Nebuchadnezzar, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, the temple, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the walls of the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of what? The kingdom of Persia. Now, notice this. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of who? Jeremiah, now, now note this language, until the land had what? It's Sabbath. Oh, that's interesting. So now there's a new detail, which you would have noticed in Leviticus 26 if we had time to go through the whole passage. You're supposed to give the land at Sabbath. How, how often do you give the land at Sabbath? We talked about this a little bit earlier. Every seven years. Okay? They hadn't been giving the land at Sabbaths. That's one of the reasons they're exiled. And it's going to fulfill its Sabbaths. So a Sabbath is coming every how many years? Seven. Seven. And how many Sabbaths do they not give to the land? Well, you're going to hear this word, 70. Um, so when we start getting to the 77s, you have to understand what's going on here. Okay, um, now, continue to all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill how many years? 70 years. So it's as if they had not given the land, okay, it's fulfilling its Sabbath. So how many Sabbaths is he saying it didn't get? A year for each Sabbath year missed. How many Sabbaths are they saying were not given? 70. Okay. A year for each Sabbath year they didn't give. Okay? 70 years. Do you understand that? that may, and each Sabbath year comes every seven years. So they hadn't given a Sabbath year every seven years for 490 years. In other words, they've just been disobedient in general <laughs> throughout their history. You guys, you guys following that? Okay? Um, now, ver verse 22. Um, now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Remember, Media, Media Persia or Medo-Persia, right? 
Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. That's the temple, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Okay, so Cyrus is declaring, Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord has put me over Babylon. I've run out the Babylonian empire, and the Lord has commanded me to let the people go back to Israel and set up a temple. You guys hear all that? Okay. Um, Jeremiah's prophecy of 70 years was fulfilled in the coming of the Persian Empire under Cyrus, who's going to send them back. That's why in Isaiah, Cyrus is referenced as the Messiah. Okay? Not the full Messiah, but, but a type of the Messiah. Why is he a type of the Messiah in Isaiah? Because he's anointed by God to return the people to the land and rebuild the dwelling place of God there. Okay? Um, Cyrus and, and, so keep this in mind, Cyrus and Darius are kings in the same empire. Media Persia, Medo-Persia. You guys follow me on that? Because remember there's two parts of that. Okay, so now I'm going to come back to the prayer of Daniel. With all that in your mind, go back to Daniel 1. Um, or Daniel 9, sorry, Daniel 9 and verse 1. Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, so Media, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians have fallen. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem namely 70 years. Now you see what's behind this prayer. So Daniel's looking going, okay, Jeremiah prophesied we'd be exiled for 70 years to give the land its 70 Sabbaths. Um, that Second Chronicles, you know, we'll, we'll read about later. Second Chronicles is after Daniel, you guys understand, but that's the language there. Um, God told Isaiah, Cyrus the Persian would come in. God told Jeremiah that this would come when the Babylonian Empire fell and the Median Empire arose uh, along with the Persian Empire. God told us in Leviticus, what? That if we do what, then he will restore us. We repent. Okay, so let's, let's move on then to the content of Daniel's prayer. Look at Daniel 9 verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord, God, Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Ashes. What's he doing? Yeah, he's repenting. Now, I want to distinguish, because this is picked up in, in woke theology today, I want to distinguish Daniel from you. Daniel's taking responsibilities from it for Israel's sin because Daniel is the appointed head of Israel at this point. He is their prophet, okay? Um, so he's gonna, take it, he's gonna take Israel's sin for all the centuries upon himself and repent on their behalf as their representative, as their prophet. This is not an example as to why you need to repent for some slave owner 200 years ago who has no relation to you and of whom you're not his representative. You guys follow me on that? Okay. For the American president to say, we repent of what our nation did, that would be entirely appropriate. 
for you to say, I repent on behalf of slave owners in the South 200 years ago, is stupid. It's not your responsibility. You, you understand the distinction there? Okay, so let's not over-apply this language. Daniel is actually the prophet of Israel, <laughs> repenting on their behalf, in line with what he's reading in Scripture. Okay, so um, goes on. Uh, verse 4, I prayed to my Lord. Now we're looking at his repentant prayer asking for mercy. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. By the way, he's, he's picking up on language like as, um, Exodus here when God reveals himself, his steadfast love, etc. Um, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. You're hearing some of this Levitical language, aren't you? Walking, listening to his voice, obeying, keeping his commands, etc. All Israel has transgressed, verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. Now this is a, um, a kind of prophetic indulgence or a prophetic idiom when he says all Israel has disobeyed you. Is it true that every single member of Israel has transgressed God's law and not obeyed him? No, okay? It's prophetic idiom. There are members of Israel who, who obeyed him. Jeremiah, Isaiah, they talk about the remnant. You guys follow me on that? It's a way of saying like, it's like saying right now, because of what we've enshrined in law with abortion, all America's guilty for the murder of the unborn. That's true. Are you necessarily individually liable? No. But are you as part of this nation liable? Sure. Right? Okay? In that sense, when we're talking about our corporate responsibility, that's what he's getting at. Not every individual was in favor of disobedience, but, but look, as a nation, that's where we were. Okay? Um, All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole of heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not, that's he's referencing Leviticus 26, by the way. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. 
Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. I want to stop there just for a second. Um, we're going to read a little bit more of this prayer before I break down much more, but I want to stop there just for a second because it's important. What does he reference with regard to God in just that verse we just read? You're the one who did what? Huh? You're the one who delivered us from Egypt. He's referencing the first Exodus. The reason I want you to understand that is because that context, you delivered us from Exodus, I mean, in the Exodus, from slavery to Pharaoh, from oppression under Egypt, um, is going to be what he's picking up when he's pressing for a new Exodus. Because now they're under Babylon. You guys, you guys understand that? Under a wicked nation, again, being oppressed, being unrepentant, right, et cetera. So he's gonna be, he's praying for a new Exodus. He's pointing back to the old Exodus, pointing forward to a new Exodus. By the way, this new Exodus is not going to be fulfilled in their return to the land in the full sense of the word. And we're gonna learn that in Daniel 9. Actually, this new exodus isn't coming for some time. There's a sort of type of it in their return to the land, but not the fullness of it. Um, that's incidentally why Luke, the Gospel of Luke, when you read it, is actually set up and Acts. Luke and Acts together, those two books. I teach a biblical theology of Luke and Acts for radius, but they're actually set up as an exodus account, a new exodus. So when you walk through them, you're being shown how Jesus is leading a new exodus um, in a full sense of the word, um, an exodus that's going to affect the entire earth where they're all being redeemed from Satan, sin, and death um, in the full sense. We miss that um, because we don't understand how predominant the exodus theme is in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Predominant. Exodus is death. I mean, the, sorry, exile is death, right? Exodus is ascension from, redemption from death, and then ascension to the holy mountain, right? That's what Exodus is. What do you do? You go down, out of paradise, exile, death, and you come up out of death into where? Ascend the mountain of the Lord where he dwells, right? That's what Exodus is. That's what it's pointing to. Um, we see that all the way through Genesis. You know, we, as we're going through Genesis at, at Sovereign Grace, you guys are gonna see that. Adam and Eve are exiled down the mountain, right, where death is, out of God's presence. Cain will be, this week we won't get all the way there, but, but we'll point to it. Cain will be exiled even further down the mountain, if you will, even further away from God's presence. There's kind of a second exile. And you'll see Abraham on more than one occasion go down into Egypt and have an exodus up out of Egypt and he takes a bunch of stuff with him given to him by those leaders. That happens in the exodus account, doesn't it? Um, so you're gonna see that played out again and again. Christ is gonna say that actually. So this is why I say Luke 9, when Christ is being transfigured, you guys remember this scene and Moses and Elijah there representing the law and the prophets 
And, um, and he starts talking about what's coming for him at the transfiguration. And he says, I'm, I'm headed to Jerusalem. In the Greek, it says this. Unfortunately, in the English, I wish we would translate it this way. I'm headed to Jerusalem for my exodon. I'm headed to Jerusalem for my exodus. Right? Um, what's he talking about? I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to go through the, the death trial and I'm going to resurrect from it. And then he goes on to talk about his ascension. I'm going to ascend the mountain of the Lord to heaven. And what am I doing? I'm doing that for you, taking you with me, right? So that language is going to run all the way through here. Um, we can't lose sight of it. When Daniel's pointing at it, it's not just incidental. It's, it's um, like architectonic. It, it, it sort of has, a, it's a ruling paradigm. Um, okay, so let's, um, let's look on verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and do his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. This is like language from the Aaronic blessing, language from Exodus when he reveals himself to, um, to Moses, you know, as you're going through here, as he's appealing to him. He's appealing to his character and to his works in the past. Do you guys follow that? Okay. Goes on. Verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Daniel understands, I don't come before you and ask you forgiveness because we've done something good, but because you're merciful. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. But you hear that language from Moses, don't you? When he's praying. And he prays on behalf of Israel. Every time they sin and he goes and prays, what do you say? Well, forgive them because you're merciful um, for your own sake. Because your name's on these people. You've made promises to them. Right? Okay. The content of Daniel's prayer then is a repentant prayer asking for mercy. The Lord is addressed with language used to dedicate the temple. I want you to notice this because this is going to become important. He's going to be addressed with language used for the dedication of the temple. So look at Daniel 9.4. We're going to go back here. Um, Daniel 9.4. And I know I'm giving you tons of themes because I want the penny to drop on the 70 weeks, which we're going to end up getting to next week. But I want the penny to drop on it because you're going to see the themes come together. Right? So if any of the guys are coming back next week who missed this week, tell them they need to listen this week or the penny's not going to drop as easily and I don't have to re-explain all the same stuff. All right, so Daniel 9, 4, um, look there. Um, notice the language. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Okay, you guys see that? All right. Keep your hand there. Go to Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7. 
I want you to hear the verse that this is the first, if you will, text, the Mosaic Covenant, in which God is addressed in the, the exact same language. Verse 9. Now therefore, or excuse me, know therefore that the Lord your God is God. Here's Moses talking to the people of Israel, right? Is God, the faithful God, who keeps what? Covenant and steadfast love with those who what? Love him and keep his commandments. Same language, isn't it? Same exact language, okay? He is the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Daniel's citing Deuteronomy 7, 9 as he's appealing to him. But Daniel's also citing the words of Solomon. So go to 1 Kings, 1 Kings 8. Remember, Solomon dedicates the temple because who's going to build the temple? Not David, but Solomon. So Solomon builds it, and he goes to dedicate it. Look at, as in his dedication, look at verse 22. We'll just read 22, but you'll see the language in verse 23. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand. You have fulfilled to this day. So now he's, he's pressing them back to Deuteronomy 7. You're the God who keeps covenant and shows steadfast love. He's made the change to your servants who walk before you with all their heart from those who love you, etc. But look at First Chronicles as well, or excuse me, Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and we're going to look at the dedication language there in chapter 6. Second Chronicles chapter 6. And look at verse 14. Again, Solomon's dedicated the temple and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Notice that he's picking up on that, again, saying that, Listen to Daniel's prayer in light of Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, and the dedication of the temple passages. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Okay? He's picking up on that language from Deuteronomy 7, 9, the same verse that Solomon's picking up in the dedication of the temple. Okay? Um... That's going to matter when we're talking about the 77s. The Exodus language matters. The dedication of the temple language matters, right? Okay. Daniel prays, what I'm saying, for a second Exodus in accord with Solomon's prayer and in accord with the Aaronic benediction. Okay, remember Aaron stands above, uh, over the people of Israel and blesses them? Okay, what's the Aaronic benediction that Aaron's supposed to stand in front of the people as a representative, hold up his hands, and bless them? And you say, when a, when a minister of the Lord holds up his hands and blesses the people of God with God's word, is the Spirit at work blessing them? Yes. That, the benediction's an actual thing. I know sometimes we, we don't think that way. We think about it like, well, the, I, I always tell people, I never leave the service until the benediction's given. Because there is 
God speaking through his appointed minister a blessing over me. Why would I want to leave before that? It's not just an empty act. You, you guys follow me on that? So that's what Aaron's doing. He's blessing the people. What does he say? The Lord bless you and keep you. Why do they want blessing? Because they are under the curse. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord what? Make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. To make his face to shine upon you is, um, you know, is, is to um, look at, to you favorably, right? And be gracious to you. Why? Because his face is turned away from them. Or if it is turned toward them, it's turned toward them in wrath and anger. Make sense? Okay? As, as people. Make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his what? Countenance, Countenance upon you and give you peace, shalom, reconciliation with God, and the inner peace of knowing reconciliation with God. Lifting up his countenance is, is um, like his smile be upon you, right? I'll pick up that language actually with Cain, because Cain's countenance is downturned. Why is your face fallen, Cain? And then he says, if you do well, um, will you not be lifted up? In other words, will your countenance not lift? Um, and, and, and he's going to talk about that. By the way, it actually says, if you do well, lifted. That's how the Hebrew reads. But we'll see. His point is, you'll be lifted up. Or we could probably translate that forgiven. Right? And the doing well is believing, which we'll, we'll talk about on Sunday. But... Here's the language. Now, notice that language. Look at Daniel 9, 5. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Okay, so we, we know that. Uh, look at Daniel 9, 15. Um, he's going to go on to say, um, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. So he's repenting, employing the language, by the way, here of our sinning and doing wickedly. He's employing the language of Jeremiah 32. Okay? So Jeremiah, remember, is the prophet that he's been reading. We know that already. Okay? So keep your hand there. Just go to Jeremiah 32 briefly. Um... This is, this is also picked up in 1 Kings 8, by the way, um, with regard to the dedication of the temple. But we'll just look at Jeremiah 32, because this all comes together. They, all right, so Jeremiah 32. Be, before I read chapter, from chapter 32, I want to point out where we are contextually. Jeremiah has told the people what? You've sinned, you've acted wickedly, what's coming for you? Exile. Judgment, wrath, exile. You violated God's covenant. Which covenant? The Mosaic covenant. God's going to exile you, but Jeremiah's news isn't all bad news. He has some good news. What is it? God's going to make a new covenant with you. Not like the one you broke. Okay? Um, you broke the Mosaic Covenant. They didn't break the Abrahamic Covenant. Let's distinguish. They broke the Mosaic Covenant. Look what it says, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, 
not like the covenant I made with them, with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of where? The land of Egypt. My covenant that they what? They broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. There's the language of God and his bride, the church. Okay, so I'm going to make a new covenant. I like the, the one they broke. Now, Jeremiah 32 falls in that context. So look over at Jeremiah 32 and look at verse 20. You brought your people, uh, you, sorry, verse 20. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with great terror. Um, uh, the reason I pick up this language, you might go, you know, and he goes on, you gave them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and they took possession of it. Look at verse 12. Uh, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounts have come up to the city to take it, and because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hand of who? The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. And so then he's going to come on and talk about um, the new covenant again, this, this promise coming. All right, so we're getting the same language. You're going to get it in 1 Kings 8 uh, with regard to the wickedness, disobedience of Israel and God dwelling among them and caring for them, right? And God cursing them when they don't obey. You guys follow me on that? Daniel's looking at all this saying... God made a covenant with us when he brought us out of Egypt and he cared for us. He brought us into the good land and he said to us, if you want to stay in the land, obey my voice, keep my law. If you don't, I will exile you. I'll bring a foreign nation against you. Um, I'll scatter you among the peoples and I'll curse you, right? And I'll curse the land um, and I'll do that sevenfold, They've been disobedient throughout their history. Okay, remember, law, here's how you're to behave in the land. Prophets, like prosecuting attorneys. Here's what God commanded you to do. Here's what you did instead. You guys follow me? What's coming for you? The exile God promised. What does Jeremiah give you new information about? Jeremiah's new information is not, if you disobey God, you'll be exiled, and you'll be punished sevenfold. They already knew that from Deuteronomy from Leviticus. What's Jeremiah's new information? It's going to be 70 years under the king of Babylon to fulfill 70 Sabbaths, 70 Sabbaths years, a year for each Sabbath year you violated, or 70 sevens, or 70 weeks. Right? Okay? So, you're hearing that. What's Jeremiah wanting? He's wanting Israel restored. He's wanting a new exodus, right? He's wanting God to dwell with his people in the temple again. Make sense? Okay, that's what Jeremiah's, Jeremiah says, that's gonna come in the new covenant, right? Okay, Daniel comes along and is praying. Daniel sees that according to scripture, the Chaldeans have been overthrown. Babylon has been overthrown. Nebuchadnezzar has been overthrown. The Medians and Persians are here. Cyrus the king, who's been anointed in Isaiah, 
to lead the people out of Israel um, has come. Darius the Mede is in his first year in the Medo-Persian kingdom. He's here. This is what Jeremiah talked about. And Leviticus says, we need to repent. God will restore us. So he prays a prayer of repentance and asks for forgiveness. And he says, Lord, take us on a new exodus. Restore your people. Bring us back to the land. Dwell among us again. You guys hearing the prayer? Okay. In light of all of that, look at Daniel 9, the end of his prayer, verse 20. And I'm going to stop here and we'll pick up what all this means next week. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, the holy hill is where God dwells, right? Who shall ascend the mount of the Lord? We've already talked about ascension and descent. So yeah, I want to go back up the holy hill. Holy hill, my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, that's an angel, whom I had seen, by the way, the same angel who comes and tells Mary about the Christ. Not unimportant that Gabriel comes here telling them about the 70 weeks and that Gabriel comes and tells them about the Messiah. Not just incidental. It's not just like God likes Gabriel, okay? He does, but that's not the point, all right? The man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, remember he saw him with the visions before, came to me in swift flight. Now, I don't think this coming is in swift flight, um, by the way. Um, Daniel's praying for the holy hill of his God, repenting of his sins. Um, who comes to him? Gabriel. Um, and when does he come to Daniel? I, I actually think he comes and touches Daniel. The language should probably be translated. Um, he came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. I actually think he does come at the time of the evening sacrifice. I think that's right, because remember, they have morning and evening worship. Um, which is why, by the way, the church in the ancient period and the Reformation period, medieval period, Reformation period, believed in morning and evening worship, not just morning. You know, it wasn't the Lord's hour. It was the Lord's day. Um, but so they, he comes at morning and evening, and he says what? He comes, it says, came to me in swift flight. I don't actually think that's right. Um, in translation, um, he comes and touches him, um, but it seems to be better translated in extreme weariness. Not that Gabriel was extremely wearied, but Daniel was. You go, that's a very different translation, extreme weariness versus swift flight. There's, there's a lot of reasons in Hebrew for that, um, but you see that same language throughout Daniel. We never translate it swift flight. So whenever the prophet's in extreme weariness, he gets the answer. Okay, so, so for example, just really briefly, look at Daniel 7, 15. Daniel 7, 15 As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Now, when does he finally approach for an answer to his questions? Once he's anxious and exhausted, okay? Go to Daniel chapter eight. Daniel chapter eight and verse 18. Remember, he, this is the first time Gabriel came to him. The 2300 evenings and mornings, remember you guys, the three and a half year period? 
okay, time, times, and half a time, which you're going to see in Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and then in Daniel 9, you'll see it again. Gabriel comes to him in a vision, verse 18, and when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be the la at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. So he's always sort of exhausted and being touched and being, having his questions answered. Look at chapter 10, verse 8. Chapter 10 and verse 8. So I was left alone and saw this great vision and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground and behold, a hand touched me and sent me trembling on my hands and knees and he said to me, O Daniel, now this language is important, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright for now I've been sent to you and when he said and he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling, okay? Daniel, man, greatly loved. The reason I pick up on that is I think this exact same thing happening here. Look again. While Gabriel, verse 21 of chapter 9, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen the vision at first, I think came to me in my extreme weariness or extreme weariness. Um, at the time of the evening sacrifice, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding at the beginning of your pleas for, a mer for mercy, a word went out and I've come to tell you uh, it to you for you are what? Greatly loved. Same language as chapter 10, isn't it? Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. I don't know why we translate it swift flight there, but there's a lot of translations that will translate it in extreme weariness. Some that will say swift flight. King James said swift flight. I think it's probably why we've stuck with it. Um, I don't think this is talking so much about Daniel, I mean, Gabriel's flying there as it is, Ga and we don't have any reason to believe Gabriel had wings. Um, <clears throat> there are angels that are talked about with wings, but Gabriel's not described that way. So, but let's, let's look down real quick, the beginning of the answer, and then we'll look at it next week. So he gets the answer, understand the vision, 70 weeks, okay? The reason I want to read this, 70 weeks, 70 sevens are decreed about your people and your holy city. The people and the city where what? The holy mountain is, right? Upon which the temple is, where God dwells. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place, or to anoint the holy of holies, or to anoint the holy one. It's hard to translate, actually. Or to anoint the Christ. It, it, we, we, there, there are some different translations. Here's what I would tell you to do this week. Um, read the 70 weeks again, but understand verse 24 is a summary of everything that's going to follow. And as you read it, go through and ask yourself, what does it mean by finish the transgression? What does it mean by put an end to sin? What does it mean to atone for iniquity? What does it mean to bring in everlasting righteousness? What does it mean to seal vision and profit and to anoint a most holy 
place, a most holy one, a holy of holies, or maybe even the holy Messiah, right? Um, what, what does all of that mean? Do we see that prophesied anywhere? Whose language is Daniel picking up on, right? And, and where is that likely to be fulfilled? We'll look at that next week, but I, I'll give you a clue. Some of this language is coming from Isaiah, if you've been studying, you guys, some of your grace group have been doing study in Isaiah. Some of this language is in Isaiah. And it seems that um, Daniel is pulling on Isaiah and Jeremiah, particularly on Isaiah and Jeremiah in this passage. Um, and then you're going to hear the language reverberate again in the New Testament. Right? Um, all right. So... Um, <laughs> The 70 weeks are decreed to give the land its Sabbaths, right? So when's this going to end? Isn't it over now? 77s, Daniel. That's the answer. 77s. 70 years is over, right? 77s are decreed for you and your people until the consummation of all this stuff you're looking forward to, till it happens, right? Not just 70 years, but 77s. Um, and so we'll look at what those 77s are next week. Let me, let me pray. Father, we're thankful for um, the grace that you've shown to your people from the time that we fell until now. Uh, we're thankful for the way that you have progressively unfolded your plan for your people prophetically um, until we see its fulfillment in Christ both in his inaugurating the kingdom of God prophesied by Daniel um, and in his promise to return to consummate that kingdom. We pray that you would help us to understand the word of the Lord to Daniel um, and that we would be thankful for its fulfillment in the Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. So next week we'll look at the 77 specifically. Hopefully you get some idea of what it might be about.